going to be in 2 Corinthians 2. So the last time we started 2 Corinthians, and today we're going to see the beautiful subject of biblical restoration and reconciliation after biblical or the biblical concept of repentance. We'll jump right in. Verse 1. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 1. The Apostle Paul is writing. He says, But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad, but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction... Tribulation, anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. And if you're new to this, the book, uh, or if you haven't been here for a few Sundays, uh, the Apostle Paul is referring to, remember, the Apostle Paul founded the Corinthian church, okay? It was a church in the middle of Corinth. Corinth had wealth. Corinth had a lot of paganry. Corinth had a lot of vices. And what happened was the um, the attitude of the surrounding area started to get into the church of Corinth and affected the believers for the negative. And we see that today, don't we? Different cultures, different churches in that culture is more or less, unfortunately, sometimes believers will reflect the influence of the outside world when they really should be reflecting the light of Jesus Christ. So Corinth had every bad problem which is kind of neat for churches today because they kind of had, if if something could go wrong in a church, it happened in Corinth. And uh, it kind of is a good lesson for us today, 2,000 years later. So you see this concept of discipline. The Apostle Paul has to discipline these believers. He visits them. He says this is a painful, a sorrowful visit, okay? And uh, he also wrote a severe letter. He wrote the letter to them that also caused them some pain and sorrow, but hard things needed to be said. They needed to be disciplined. And we see the concept here also of tough love and possibly, at times, turning a back on a brother or a sister. And 1 Corinthians 5 was a great foundational message. So if you haven't been with us for the last few months, um, at at the end of the service or another time, you could download 1 Corinthians 5 off the website, and it really gives you a good foundation to what we're covering today. So verse 1, the Apostle Paul made a previous visit. It was painful. It was sorrowful. Some hard things had to be said. And Paul didn't want now for his mere presence to come again because some were complaining. Paul said he was going to come and he came at a later date and he, he through prayer and, and good judgment, he decided not to come again right after that painful visit and that painful letter that he, he wrote to them. But um, Paul didn't want his mere presence to cause more pain than needed to them. And also to him, he had a personal stake in this. He was like a father, a spiritual father, or a shepherd to the Corinthians. He loved them. He was tough. But there's a counterproductive point where the meeting just becomes contentious. And if you've been in the Lord long enough, you've experienced this. Something needs to be said. It's a hard thing that needs to be said. You're afraid of saying it because you don't want to cause bad feelings. You don't know how the person's going to receive it. And then you, you kind of get, then there's other instances where you start talking and you really start to get rolling and you, you know, try to be careful not to hit too hard because the goal is restoration and the goal is love. So there's that point, that decision point to continue with the same line of thought or to just back off and let the Lord handle it. And that's what Paul was going through. 
the second uh, verse. He says, if I make you sorrowful, who will make me glad? In other words, if I go too far and make your lives miserable, it hurts you, but it also hurts me, right? And to some extent, for lack of a better term, he's saying to them, I feed off of your joy, right? So if you're sorrowful, um, it's going to cause me grief too. I love the Apostle Paul. He, he wears his heart on his sleeve. And if I didn't know he was Jewish, I would think that he was part Sicilian. <laughs> but we do ministry. Why? Because God calls us to do ministry. One of the books I recommend out there at the book table is uh, when people are big and God is small. As Christians, sometimes we have our priorities uh, reversed. God should be big and people should be small. But as social creatures, we also take pleasure in seeing lives changed for the better. If you're really doing ministry with the right attitude, you have no greater joy, number one, to serve the Lord, and then after that to see people change for the better. Families, um, marriages get better, uh, prodigals return home, or discipling or mentoring, and then seeing maturity, right? Or even from the pulpit. I've had people come back to me and say, you know, Pastor Joe, I had ideas about this, that, and the other thing. And then after hearing the Bible for several months or a year, I've changed my position, and I'm more in line with what God wants. So that's exciting to hear. And he also... Uh, Paul's concern, or maybe from abstaining from this particular visit, this other visit that would have caused more contention, he wanted the letter to sink in, he wanted what he said to sink in while he was there in person, to get things straightened out, so that when he came back, there would be repentance, there would be restoration, and they could all have sweet fellowship and enjoy each other's company again. Verse 4, it's going to be a little bit hard, or some of the hard things, the hard concepts of the scripture, and then verses 5 through 11, we'll see really the, the light at the end of the tunnel, the good news that arises from this. But verse 4, he says, He wrote this severe letter with anguish, distress, and tears. It wasn't easy. He didn't enjoy it. And if we ever have to discipline, we don't enjoy it. And again, that's with the right heart. You've heard the proverbial father say to the son, Son, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you, right? And I even look at when I have to discipline my son, um, it's not fun. And if I have to discipline him, uh, there's a break in fellowship for a time. And I love my son. You know, we do a lot of things together. So it's a hard thing to discipline, but you do it because you love someone, right? Paul didn't want the church to destroy themselves, so he had to deal with them. Now, Jesus did the same thing in John chapter 2. You know, for those of you who think that Jesus walked around with a tie-dye tie shirt and a bandana and walked through the buttercup fields, you know, you may have the wrong impression of Jesus. In John chapter 2, he went into the temple and he overturned tables. He made a whip of cords and drove the money changers out. In Matthew 23, he, he rebukes the religious leaders and say, you, you, you go land and soul to win one convert, and then when you win that convert, you make them twice the son of hell that you are. Well, if you've never heard that before, Jesus had, was tough when he had to be tough. But do you think for one minute that Jesus didn't love those religious leaders? Oh, I hear people get excited. Yeah, you know, get them, Jesus. But Jesus loved them. As a matter of fact, some from the council became believers. And Acts 6-7 tells us many of the priests came to the faith. So it did have the effect, the intended effect that it was set forth to do. So this is the biblical order. Sin. We all sin right, to varying degrees, to various um, seriousness, or et cetera. 
And even in the Old Testament, it has a whole list of different sins and what the punishment or the discipline is for that sin. Okay? So you could sin against a fellow believer. You can sin against a family member. You can sin against a brother or or a sister in the church. So what happens after that? Maybe discipline, maybe punishment. But I I also look at this, the first step is that sometimes we hear the word of God and we are convicted. Right? We hear a message, we read a scripture, and you, you, you're like, oh, I can't believe this. This speaks to my situation. And you're, you're cut to the heart. You're conscience-stricken. Right? So there's some, in some instances, there's really no need for discipline or punishment because you are repentant. You look at what happened, and you have a conviction yourself. And that brings me to the second point, repentance. Right? Repentance. And forgiveness. Repentance. That's the responsibility of the offender. When we offend someone, when we sin against someone, we repent. And forgiveness, that's the responsibility of the person who's been offended. When repentance happens, then they forgive. That's the third step. The fourth step is restoration. You bring the two parties together and the offense is forgotten. And then the last part is sweet fellowship. And that's a a catharsis. If you've been a Christian long enough and if you've been through this, maybe you've been the offender, maybe you've been the person who was offended, and you're brought back together with that person. It's a cleansing of the soul. It's a catharsis. It's a cleaning. It's really a good feeling. Now, unfortunately, what happens today, and again, it's it's societal influence because we're more concerned about self-esteem than anything else in our society. This is what happened. Sometimes even in the church, there's sin. And then after that, There's ignoring the sin, running away, playing dumb, obfuscating, lying about the incident, giving it a few months, coming back and testing the waters to see if everybody's okay with you. That is not the way it's supposed to be. You see, repentance is the key ingredient. And I want to read the definition of repentance. My uh, desktop dictionary gives a few definitions here. Repentance, number one, to feel sorry or self-reproachful for what one has done or failed to do, to be conscience-stricken or contrite. Number two, to feel such regret or dissatisfaction over some past action, intention, etc., as to change one's mind about. And number three, to feel so contrite over one's sins as to change or decide to change one's ways, to be penitent. And the key here, too, is fruits of repentance. It's not just saying, I repent, it's meaning I repent. And that's really important. And I've used this illustration before. I'm going to use it again, but to a lesser degree. Somebody did an illustration about horses. Whenever I hear an illustration... You know, I have to go right to the encyclopedias and find out more information. And it's about horses. Horses are herd animals. Horses are, if you get a bunch of horses together, it's called a band of horses. They're awesome creatures, and they're very intelligent. But they do a lot of things more with actions than words. Humans, unfortunately, do a lot of things with words and not actions. But horses, right? You've got your band of horses, and in, in the front, you have the alpha mare. She leads the pack. And in the back, you have the stallion. And he keeps the stragglers in line and helps to fend off the predators. They all have a role. And oftentimes in this band at various times, maybe because of youth or what have you, one horse will start to nip at the other horses or kick at them and really cause a problem in the band. So the other horses figure this out. And what they do is they open up, push him out, make a circle again, right, and keep him out. And every time he tries to get out, they form a wall or a line against that offending horse. 
The way they know, and their goal as horses is to bring that horse back into fellowship, the way they know that he's repentant is that the horse will, will move very slowly towards the band, and the horse will lower his head almost to the ground, right? And they see that action, they open up the band, let him back in, close it up like it never happened. I think a lot of times, I love nature, I love God's creation, I raise bees, and I think that we can learn a lot from the animal kingdom. Not that they're better than us, but it's their only good, and they only make sense because God has programmed that in them. And we are very stubborn creatures, and we can learn from the animal kingdom in some respects because God is the author of that. But what, is, what does repentance look like? And I've used this example before. Let me use two fine, upstanding men in the fellowship, and I always pick on the people in the front. You have Russ here and Arnie, right? And I know this would never happen, but Russ goes around to the whole church little by little and says awful things about Arnie, but don't say anything, and completely ruins Arnie's reputation. And then Russ is found out, right? Everybody thinks that Arnie's a bad guy. And uh, Russ goes to Arnie and says, I'm sorry, and that's the end of it. Do you think that's true repentance? No, of course not. There's, there's no actions. There's no fruits of repentance there, right? But that's much of what happens in our society and unfortunately in the church. It's unbiblical and it's unacceptable. And it leads to bitterness. And sometimes it leads to phoniness because the person who's offended is, is convinced from others around, you know, the Bible says you have to forgive. Okay, let's look at that in context. So the person who's been offended and there's been no fruits of repentance, it's hard for them to continue on, but they're being told that they have to forgive. So what do they do? They put on the phony mask and go to church and smile and act like everything's okay. And that is not repentance. You see, I love you and I'm sorry are two of the most overused phrases, I believe, in our vernacular and our, our culture. I'm sorry can usually have a veiled meaning for other things. I'm sorry can mean please don't retaliate, I'm busted. I'm sorry can mean please don't break the relationship, I didn't think it was going to go this far. Or I'm sorry can mean I'm embarrassed, can we not talk about this anymore? See, there's a lot of meanings behind I'm sorry. With my son... When he does something wrong, I don't want to get him down to the ground, put his arm behind his back, jack him up and say, now say you're sorry. I want him to mean he's sorry. And if it means to go to his room and sit in it and think about it, maybe pray about it, and then come out with the desired results, that's what I'm looking for. And I'll tell you the truth, I do the same thing. If I do something wrong and I pray and I confess my sins, I know that God knows what I did was wrong. I know it's wrong. I know the Bible says that it's wrong. But sometimes I'll say to the Lord, you know what, Lord? I don't want to say it as a knee-jerk reaction. I'm really not sorry yet. Give me some time. Let me sit in it for a little bit. And then I'll come back to the Lord and I'll really mean that I'm sorry. You see? Sometimes we have to let people sit in it a little bit. To sit in stupid for a while. And sometimes we have to sit in stupid when we do stupid things. You know, it's just the way it is. Horses though, say, I love you and I'm sorry with actions. They don't say it with words. They don't say it with whinnies. They say it with actions. They're very, very smart creatures. So back to our story with Russ and poor Arnie here. Uh, they're both great guys. <laughs> the, the right thing for Russ to do would be to go with all the people, embarrass himself, and say, you know what? I said something about Arnie and I was really out of line. And until he's gone to every person and, and, and made it right. So now they realize that, you know, it's not just the pastor saying it from the pulpit or Arnie defending himself. Russ is exhibiting fruits of repentance. Don't forget that sin in the church, church is God's forum. It is offensive to God. 
It's hard for us to be walking with the Lord and doing these kinds of things. 1 John 1, 6 says this. This is great. I think I might do 1 John next. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with him, meaning God, and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We're liars because our actions say something different. In the Corinthian era, you had to work out your sin with your fellow believer. Today, you can just change churches and hope that nobody knows you from the new church and start all over again, right? In the Corinthian era, the closest church was about 50 to 100 miles by foot. Guess what? You were stuck with those people in the church. There wasn't one a mile down the street. You had to work it out. You had to play nice in the sandbox with the other children. It was very important. For the purpose of context, though, we can see several types of relationship breaches here. So we can make many applications. Number one probably wouldn't apply to most situations today or any situation, but number one, the apostle who founded this church, the, the breach of relationship between the apostle and the people that, that, or the church that he founded, that's the first relationship we see here. Second, the backslidden Christian and their God. Sometimes it's maybe not a, an offense against another person, but it's a, a real offense of sin against God. And three, believer to believer. So those are the three relationships you can see in this. And if you've been a Christian long enough, you'll find yourself often, well, hopefully not too often, on both sides of the relational fence. When you're the offender and you repent, you really hope that the person you go to and say you're sorry to and repent to is going to show you grace. Otherwise, it's a very awkward situation. If you are the offended, right, you really hope that the person who offended you will finally see the folly of their ways and stop doing what they're doing and, uh, you know, bring that restoration back. I want to read what Warren Wiersbe says. He's a Baptist preacher um, about this subject. He says, Church discipline is not a popular subject or a widespread practice. Too many churches sweep things under the rug instead of obeying the scriptures and confronting the situation boldly by speaking the truth in love. Peace at any price is not a biblical principle, for there cannot be true spiritual peace without purity. Problems that are swept under the rug have a way of multiplying and creating even worse problems later on. And I can understand, me being in the position, you're always looking for servants, especially if somebody's in ministry, there's a hard decision there. You have to do the right thing. But if you start removing people from ministry, you've got to find replacements. And then people ask a whole bunch of questions. So it puts a, a leader or a pastor in a quandary. But we have to trust God enough to do the right thing and then let God sort the rest out of it. Isaiah 5.20 says that there will be a day, and it was a day in, his, in Isaiah's day and also in, in our time period, where right will be called wrong and wrong will be called right. And today what we do is we call sin diseases. We call sin lifestyles. You know what that does, folks? There's a little twist in psychology there. What it does is it absolves us from all culpability. Hey, I'm not guilty. I was born this way. It's a predisposition. God made me a sinner. Now we're blaming God, right? Shame and sin have lost their bite in society. Shame. You know, in the Old Testament, God spoke about people's shame, and he spoke about their nakedness in a, a spiritual sense, Today, people take their clothes off, and they're not ashamed. So this is what we have in our society. We've lost the shame aspect. We can't feel shame because it's an affront to our self-esteem. Now, listen, God loves us, right? But 
we need to feel these things and we need to be convicted and repentant at times. Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, called Papa Chuck by many, has said this on this subject, you don't have to forgive unless there's repentance. That's amazing coming from him. Luke 17, Jesus himself said, if your brother repents, then forgive 70 times 7. We forget that part. If your brother repents. See, in the Greek and the English, those are called conditional statements or if-then statements. If, if is met, then then takes place. Aeon is, the, is, is what starts the Greek um, um, phrase there, and that indicates a conditional statement. So when repentance is met, forgiveness is met. Now, why? Because you don't want to add something good to a bad foundation. You see, when the heart changes, behavior follows, and there's fruits of repentance. John the Baptist spoke about that. He said, the Messiah is coming. You better bear fruits of repentance. And there's also a reciprocal process that bad behavior left unchecked can become contagious. It become, spreads like leaven or cancer, and we see that in 1 Corinthians 5. It's the same thing with salvation. Do you realize that you can't just add Jesus to your lifestyle? What is this, the altar call, coming to Christ? You know, what does it all mean, right? If you're, let me just give you an example. You're a polytheist if you just take Jesus and add him to the rest of your, your idols. Let's say that's the direction of God, and this is the direction of my self-directed life. And I'm walking in this direction, and I have a backpack, and there's a b- bunch of idols in there. There's me, there's my success, there's my time, there's my money, there's my desires, my lust. They're all in the backpack. And I'm on the road, and I'm confronted with the cross. I'm confronted with Jesus. And I say, hmm, everlasting life. I like that. And we try to take Jesus, make him into an idol, put him on our backpack, and keep going. That is not receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior. When we come to the cross, we realize we've done wrong. We realize that a self-directed life doesn't work. I don't care how good you are. I thought I was pretty okay when I came to Christ. But when I really realized what it meant and what he did for me and how I'm a sinner, what I had to do is take off my backpack with all the little idols, put it on the ground, take his pack. He spoke about his pack. It's a light pack. And, And to look at him and to realize that I've been wrong and now to do and about face and walk towards God. That is repentance. I'm changing my direction, right? I want Jesus. I want everlasting life, but it needs to be done with repentance. You need to clean out the junk and start afresh. Now, am I saying that when we repent and come to Christ, we become perfect? Absolutely not. But it is a heart change, and it is something that we desire. And even if we've been believers 70 or 80 years, we never arrive at that, that, that plateau, that perfection level. That only happens when Jesus comes back for us and we're perfected. Now, to the most enjoyable part, verse 5. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Result of repentance forgiveness and restoration. And this is the beautiful part of this chapter, right? But understand, you can't have a 2 Corinthians 
if you don't have a 1 Corinthians. You can't have a 2 Corinthians without a severe letter or a painful visit, depending on how bad the offense is. But in context, let me just say this. Bible commentators have looked at us, and there are general problems in Corinth, but there's also a particular person that the Apostle Paul speaks of. So again, there's a lot of different issues going on. Some believe that the person is the man in 1 Corinthians 5, where there was a man in the church fellowshipping with other believers, coming to church, and having an adulterous relationship with his father's wife. Some believe it was some, one or many of the false teachers that opposed Paul publicly because they did that. They opposed him, they argued with him, they tried to poison the church against him. Now, what's interesting is if it is the man who is the adulterous man, you don't hear anything about the woman. So we can only surmise, and it's just a, it's just a surmising, that the woman was not a believer. So she didn't fall into church discipline. She, she doesn't care. But what's amazing is, see, here's the problem. This is the rub. What makes this exponentially worse, if this is the case, is that this man was having sex with his father's wife, staying in the church, fellowshipping in the church, and acting like there was no problem. This is why unbelievers don't want to come to church, because they see hypocrisy in the church, and you can't blame them. It's funny when I, people find out I'm a pastor, they're like, well, I don't want to go to church because of this, and I don't want to go because of that. And I, I agree with everything they say. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because they're right, right? It's, it's, they should see a, uh, an example, not hypocrisy. Verse 5, Paul's saying that, look, I'm not taking it personal. Mostly the brothers and sisters in Corinth were uh, offended. And there's this concept coming up of one for all and all for one. Verse 6, Apparently, most of the church was united in turning the back on this man, and it had the desired effect of repentance, according to the scripture. Let me just requote 1 Corinthians 5. In this situation, the Apostle Paul said, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Hand him over. That's what Paul said. Hand him over. Kick him out of the church. Hand him over to Satan. Destroy his flesh. Now, does that mean destroy the flesh that you hold him down and give him a beating? That's not what he's talking about. This is, I'm some sort of some would like that, but that's not advocated in the scripture. The flesh is sarx versus soma, where we get the word somatic from in our English, right? Soma is strictly of the body. Sarx can mean of the body, but it also means the flesh. The destruction of the flesh. The destruction of those lusts. The destruction of Satan ruling your life. Let it be destroyed. Let him be out of fellowship. Let him be out of the light. So Satan can have his way with him. He can realize what he did, like the prodigal son, and come back repentant. That's important. That's important to look at. Verse 7 and 8, he says, basically, when the person has repented, let it go. Don't hold it over his head, right? Welcome him back as a brother who is loved. What happens is, and you've heard different expressions and people coming from churches and saying that they've been wounded and all this kind of stuff, but... Sometimes the church can take it too far and hold the person in a caste system, hold them down, and always keep that thing over their head. And that's not what we're supposed to do. The Bible says it's wrong. As a matter of fact, the Greek word for swallowed up, he says he doesn't want them to be swallowed up with too much sorrow. If you took, looked at that word literally in the Greek, it means to drown at sea. That's not what we're looking for. The effect or the desired effect of punishment is never this. With the same fierceness, we try to elicit repentance. That same fierceness has to be used with getting everybody to welcome the person back, right? We have to be fair. And this is amazing. You can see str uh, strength on one side 
and strength on the other side. As strong as Paul is for discipline, correction, and repentance, he's equally as strong for restoration and bringing the person back into the fold. Verse 10. He basically says that to them, if you Corinthians forgive, and, and, you know, then I trust your judgment and I'll do the same. Again, it's that unity, right? And in the Greek, Paul uses the word for forgiveness. There's two words, I believe. Uh, the one he uses is very closely associated with grace, right? It's like the same grace that God shows us. No matter how many times we've sinned and offended him, Christ paid that price for our sins on the cross, so he shows us grace. He shows us unmerited favor, something we don't deserve, especially the longer we live our lives as, as crazy sinners and then finally come to the cross. All that stuff is wiped away. He declares us righteous in that moment when we trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior and repent. So the same unity shown in discipline, the same unity is to be shown in forgiveness. We act as a unit, like the horses. You open up the band and let that one formerly unruly horse back into the band and close up the unit again right? Verse 11, why do we not delay in forgiveness and restoration? Because Satan will always get a foothold if we fail to follow the process that God set up. Unforgiveness is a sin, and unforgiveness can lead to bitterness, and that bitterness will lead to division. Someone is on a mission because they've been hurt to hurt others, right? Or despair and self-loathing. And there are, you know, the I mean, the, the cults kind of do this. I mean, they teach false doctrine, and they, uh, if you don't follow everything that their high leaders say, they uh, disfellowship you. They, you know, and, and it's basically based on a lot. I've seen this, a lot of false doctrine, all right? And that's not what we're looking for here. Satan will surely take advantage of believers who are not living by God's standards, the offender or the church. So the offender needs to live by God's standards. Repentance. And the church needs to live by God's standards. Yes, repentance, now forgiveness, and restoration is important and in order here. And I would just say, again, if you've been a Christian for a while, you have experienced the great feeling of sweet fellowship after this restoration, right? It's, it's a cleansing. And, and I've even seen some brothers or sisters kind of laugh about, you know, the first time they met and how they you know, were at each other's throats or whatever the case may be. And they just laugh and it doesn't even bother them anymore because that's all in the past. And they could even joke about it at this point, right? The Bible says, though, that the love covers a multitude of sins. I believe that we can show grace and we should as long as the heart changes and the change of behavior is the goal. See, a perversion of grace is something which fosters self-destructing destruction. Now, let me change my hats. Being a road police officer for 19 years, I've seen a lot of, and I'll just use the more serious examples, addictions, heroin users. You know, I've seen young people in the fetal position, rigor mortis, with the needle stuck in their arm after the hot load went through their veins and killed them. All right? Loving someone is not enabling them because I get to see the end of the road when they're dead in their 30s or their 20s. Okay, we don't coddle bad behavior to the point where people destroy themselves, to the point where the person has a problem and they're in sin and they're robbing their parents' jewelry and breaking into their grandmother's homes. Okay, we don't coddle sin. It sounds hard, it sounds harsh, but God knows best and I'm willing to trust him for that end. All right, so we, we need to be concerned about that. Now, again, a lot of this stuff is going to be a judgment call. Can I tell you every situation, boom, 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 what you should do and what you shouldn't do? A lot of it has to do with prayer. Is the person truly repentant? Should I err on the side of grace and trust that the person is repentant? 
or is the person just manipulating me to get something out of me? See, these are the questions we have to ask, and hopefully God can answer them for us, right? Verse 12. He says, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. So check it out. The Apostle Paul had a great ministry opportunity in Troas, but dropped it because he was concerned about Titus. He was waiting for Titus to come back from Corinth and give him the report on how the church was doing, right? And he had, he had, he had no rest in his spirit. So he, I, you know, at least for a moment, Satan won a battle. So Paul ends up going west and, and, and south and going to find Titus, eventually re, is reunited with Titus, and Titus tells him a lot of what happened, but it was good news. But this shows a few things. We can say, well, Paul was disobedient. God gave him a ministry opportunity. But let's look at this in two ways. Number one, he was human. The cool thing that I like about this is you don't read about the Apostle Paul who was so perfect that nobody could ever achieve his standard or level. We read that about Jesus because he was divine, but not about Paul or any of the men or women involved. So number one, Paul, leaders, pastors, are human and fallible and can be sidelined, at least temporarily, by sin in the church. I'll just get a little bit more personal. There are some of you who are here because a pastor was driven out of your own church by sin in the church, and he just couldn't take it. Packed up his family and walked away. The second thing is troublemakers in the church serve Satan and not God. It is demonic. It comes from the devil himself. I was at the East Coast Pastors Conference, the big conference that Calvary's put on every year. Um, and one of the statistics they gave was that it takes, on, on average, of seven troublemakers in a church to cause a pastor to quit. That's it. We're out of here. I'm done. I'll swing a hammer or something. I've got to find something else to do. Seven troublemakers. That's not a lot. And that's the average. So what we should see about this is that it's sobering. Satan won a battle, but he, he eventually loses the war. And again, we find out that everything went well. Um, Titus comes to Paul, gives him a very good report. You know, the place isn't imploding upon itself. There's a lot of good fruit here, Paul. Verse 14, and this kind of sums it up. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the ones, we are the aroma of death to death, and to the other, the aroma of life to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God. We speak in the sight of God and in Christ. In this last section, we see the overriding principle. We deal in spiritual matters, right? We deal in the afterlife. In the Roman triumph, it was similar to the old ticker tape parades that we had in this country when, uh, you know, after World War II, coming back from the war, you, you, you know, you shower the soldiers with the ticker tape and everybody's cheering and we won the war, we're victorious. Well, the Romans had what they called the Roman triumph. And Paul would have seen this at least on a few occasions and certainly the people around him in that time would have been familiar with it. But in the Roman triumph, it's very similar. The Roman, the conquering, victorious Roman generals would be paraded through the streets with their officers and a lot of cheering and pomp and, and, um, and unfortunately the poor saps in the back who were bound 
you know, well, they didn't have a good fate. You know, they were taken into slavery from the conquered lands. But what would happen is the Roman priests would burn incense, and the, the air would be filled with incense. And that one smell was interesting because to the prisoners in the back, the ones who were taken, it meant certain death. That smell was dread. They smelled that incense, and they knew that they were probably going to the arenas, and they were going to be ripped apart by the wild beasts. But the same exact smell, no variation, to the Roman generals meant victory. They were victorious. The people loved them, and that smell was a, a smell of excitement and victory. Same smell. Now, what we can be sure of is that Christ is victorious, and as true believers that serve him, we should exude a fragrance of Christ, because the Bible says that we are more than conquerors. Verse 16, he says, To the one we are the aroma of death to death, and to the other the aroma of life to life. Now, these were idioms, death to death and life to life. Death to death was physical death to ultimately eternal death, condemnation, judgment, hell, the end of the line. To the others, we are the, uh, it's, it's life to life. The life and joys of being a Christian, the joy of being fulfilled in Christ, and also the joy of knowing the ultimate goal that we have eternal life. To those who want eternal life and are willing to trust Jesus, we, brothers and sisters, are the fragrance of life. And you ever wonder why some people can be around you and they're just, they're, their spirits are lifted and they want to talk about God and, they, and they, you kind of encourage them just by your presence? And then some, just by your presence, are angry with you and you can see they're uncomfortable and maybe they're looking to pick a fight with you, maybe relatives or family members or you know, people that are close to you, <laughs> right? Because to some, we're the aroma of life to life and some, we're the aroma of death to death. Oh, they're going to talk about that Jesus guy and talk about hell and the Bible thumpers and I don't want to see them for Thanksgiving and you know, the whole deal, right? And you're sure you've all experienced that. But the question is, what do we smell like? Now, I'm not asking you to tell me if your deodorant's still working. I'm talking about a smell and aroma that can't be washed off in a shower. Folks, what do we smell like to those around us? Do we even have the fragrance of Christ at all, even a whiff? Do we make an impact at all for the kingdom of heaven, even if it's just our behavior? Or are we so caught up in materialism and love of this world, like the Corinthians, that we stink of those things? We don't reek, we don't smell of the fragrance of Christ, but we smell of the world, Right? Some believers just reek of themselves. They're so self-absorbed. They're not concerned about serving others. They're not concerned about other people. But they're always just concerned about how they can be served. And they're, they're concerned about making a big splash and having everybody pay attention to them. They don't have the fragrance of Christ. They have the fragrance of themselves. Last verse. He says, For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but of sincerity, but as of from God, we speak in the sight of God and Christ. Peddling the word of God. When I look this up, it's a phrase, but in the Greek, it, means, it can mean a corrupting, it can mean a diluting, it can mean a watering down, right? That's why I have a problem with, with guys like Joel Osteen, quite honestly. A lot of the stuff he says is right, but he's even said it on interviews. Ah, I don't want to talk about hell and you know, sin and all that kind of stuff. It's a downer. So I'm just going to tell you this stuff. That's not the truth. He's watering it down because he has a goal. He has a purpose, right? But he says, we are sincere. Now, interesting, that word in the old language initially meant without wax. In those days, they would have, you know, stone, marble, or whatever, and they would, you know, 
it would take a long time with the chisel and the hammer, and they would uh, make a bust of you or somebody famous, of Nero. You've seen those, those busts. They look like concrete, and you know, there's no eyeball, and basically it's just all stone. But what would happen is if they got really close to the end, and this thing was starting to come out good, and they hit a little bit too hard with the hammer, they would break off a nose <laughs> or break off an ear. So what they had to do was get wax and form it up and, and put it and putty it up because they didn't want to start all over again. And then they would paint it, and it wouldn't be sincere. It wouldn't be authentic. And if the weather got hot, the ear would, they would melt, right? So Paul says, we want to be sincere. We want to be without wax, right? And the question is, are folks, are we sincere about eternal life? Are we sincere at least in wanting others to be saved? Is that our desire? Look, we all have a lot of desires. We're all going to do a lot of things when we leave here today. We all have plans this week. We all have plans for the new year. But is that at least our desire? My desire is for other people to be saved. I'll leave you with one more illustration. Somebody showed me on YouTube, um, you know Penn and Teller, they're like magicians? Some of you know what I'm going to say. I guess the one guy, Penn, he did this five-minute diatribe. He's a hardcore atheist. That's his belief system. And he speaks about this one guy, one Christian businessman came to him, started talking to him, gave him a Bible. He said, I'm not weird or anything. I'm a businessman. I'm successful. But I, you know... I want to tell you about Jesus Christ. And I know you're an atheist, but I really want you to read this. So Penn was so taken by this that he does this five-minute thing on YouTube, and he said he really believes what he's saying. I don't believe in Jesus or eternal life, but this man believed what he was saying. And he goes on to say, how, if you're a Christian, now this is an atheist talking to us. He goes, if you're a Christian, how much do you have to hate someone to not tell them about eternal life? He goes, this man loved me, and I could tell he was sincere. Right? Should be convicting. Should be convicting. We all got things to do, folks, but at least there should be a desire in us to bring other people to Christ and to eternal life. Or are we distracted? Listen, I'm not big into New Year stuff, but heck, we're starting a new year, and uh, I'll go with it a little bit. In the new year... If we're going to do anything, yeah, we all want to shed some of those holiday cookies. My wife had to buy me new three pairs of new pants because, you know, I wasn't able to tuck in my shirts anymore. So be it. Uh, we all want to do things for New Year's. We all have our resolutions. But I would just say this, starting the new year, what do we believe? We need to ask ourselves, what do we believe? What are we here for? What is our purpose in life? What has God called us to do? Why do we believe why we believe? Because I just believe? Because my parents believe that? That's unacceptable. Why do you believe what you believe? And my prayer and my desire is for all of us is that we exude the fragrance of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, as always, your word is inspiring. It's awesome, Lord. It's your word. Romans 10, 17 says that your word has regenerative...